Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Eric Roper, a reporter at the Star Tribune in Minneapolis who's one of the best young reporters in the country. Eric was a finalist for the Livingston Awards, which are a pretty big deal for young journalists under 35 uh, a couple years ago, and he's done a lot of very interesting work. One of the things that I really enjoyed about our conversation, which goes along with how good this guy is, is that he talks very openly about the neuroses that goes with being a journalist sometimes about, you know, am I actually any good? This is sort of the, the sort of questions that sometimes you have to deal with as a journalist where you question where you question the work that you do and you're questioning uh, the time it takes you to do it and you're questioning, 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 which is what we do for a living. And sometimes we do, do it of ourselves and that's one of the things that I enjoyed talking to him about. Now, if you enjoyed this week's podcast, and I think you will, not just because there's a lot of self-doubt in it, but because there's an interesting story about a very talented guy doing his thing, then I hope you'll consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, enjoy the talk. So all the stories that you could have framed in your kitchen, mm-hmm. your variety story about getting rid of your car, <laughs> that's the one. Sure, my uh, so the my boyfriend actually framed that uh, for our anniversary, which is sort of strange, I suppose. But it, I think, the reason for it was that uh, few stories that I've written in my time have um, sort of defined me as much because it was a first person story, and I don't really write first person stories. So this was about me selling my car, which is still. I would say in Minnesota, it's sort of a very radical thing to do. It's not a typical thing to do. I'm still very happy with that decision. Everybody asks me if I regret it uh, now. And I They're still know. coming at you about it? There, people at work are like, Did, you know, you still happy with that decision to sell your car? And I say, oh, yeah, totally. Because uh, I think, as a, I mean, relating back to being a reporter, I feel like I have. it's allowed me to discover a city that is like an adopted city for me in a way that I never did when I was in a vehicle and like walking all winter. I mean, it's very cold here and I walk all winter and taking the bus and sort of experiencing everything at ground level, it helps me as a reporter too. And it just makes me happier, I think. But um, So I don't know. I don't regret it at all, but <laughs> people still ask. Are you, are you less stressed from walking? Totally, yeah. Uh, I think that... This, I think, especially in the wintertime, um, in places like Minnesota, where you're very cooped up, and then you're in your car and you're cooped up, you know, when you get dressed and you're out, and I'll walk down Lake Street on a Saturday, and I'm, I'm dressed for the weather, and it's just amazing, you know, and you appreciate the winter a lot more. You don't reject it as much. Um, I don't know. I've sort of become an evangelist about this, about just getting out in winter, because I do it now, and uh, I think it... I don't know. It might not, it maybe sometimes doesn't make any sense, but um, you know, Minneapolis has built its city, especially downtown, around like sort of running away from winter in some ways with the skyways. Uh, so you get in your car and then you get to the skyway. You you could sort of go through your whole day without stepping foot outside, and it just seems like why would you live here? Why you know just embrace it if you can, you know? But 
What did I read recently that suggested that the Skyway is like a boondoggle or something, or that it didn't work out very well? <laughs> the Skyways are super controversial. I tell this to people, and you know, people who maybe aren't so tuned in to these policy debates, these urban policy debates, and they they haven't thought about it. But people who think about urbanism in Minneapolis uh, are really critical, frequently, of Skyways because of the way that they've created this sort of second level hidden world where it's not really accessible to you know people who are unfamiliar uh, and then people who are taking transit or waiting for the bus are like separated from that world and some people would argue that's not the best uh, you know the best outcome um, and but I recently heard an argument counter to this which I thought was interesting which is that there is few places in the United States where you can travel so quickly through a downtown as a pedestrian where there's just no hindrances there's no stopping you are just constantly moving and that was compelling uh i still feel like they do sort of drag some of the life out of the streets um but that's a you know it's a debate that's going on between sort of people who work downtown and people urbanists i think there's sort of a even the downtown council is has taken a somewhat uh, resistant approach to skyways, which is very different than where they were in the 60s, I'd say. Well, you know, I guess things change over the course of 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so you're the city hall reporter, mm-hmm. and so you spend a lot of time downtown. Yeah. Uh, do you have an office in the in the uh, city hall building? No. We used to. It's amazing that we don't. Um you know, they're used to, I mean, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there were reporters swarming around City Hall in Minneapolis. Now it is a small bunch, I would say. I mean, I think maybe there's five people, and they're not all there all the time by any means. And I'm not there all the time either, but I'm, I work, our offices are just next door, so they're sort of, you know, we're right, next, we're right there. But it's sort of a shame, you know, I mean, um, there's just not enough reporters probably to keep a bureau going. But St. Paul City Hall does have a bureau. Uh, And I don't, you know, I don't know that they necessarily have any more. I don't think they have more reporters covering that, covering City Hall there than we do. So, um, yeah, no, we don't have a bureau in there. The long answer to a short question. Uh, Well, I think, think, uh, so, you know, I was going to use that as an introduction just to say that you cover uh, Minneapolis, and so it's something that you know a lot about. But uh, was that is that ever funny to you, where you stop and you think, hey, I'm in Minneapolis, covering Minneapolis, because you're not from here, right? No, I grew up in New York City, and then I went to college in Washington, D.C., George Washington University, and I... Uh, hooked up and I, I got an internship in the DC bureau there, an internship that no longer exists, but was a very cool internship where you, it was you and uh, and at the time it was just the intern and Kevin Diaz and Kevin Diaz now works for the Houston Chronicle, but he's a great r- reporter, a great mentor to me, and so it's just the two of us in the bureau, and I had never been to Minnesota, and uh, but I was getting you know I was recovering the congressional delegation, so I was covering. Michelle Bachman and then Al Franken when he arrived and uh, John Klein and Colin Peterson and Amy Klobuchar and I would get these calls from Minnesotans because they published our number in the paper 
And uh, that was like my little window into Minnesota. You know, like every day I would have these voicemails from every everyday Minnesotans just calling to leave their opinions about TARP or, you know, the bailouts or the health care bill or whatever. Did you get a bunch of crazy calls from people about, like, Keith Ellison and stuff? <laughs> <laughs> One of the first stories I wrote was about Keith Ellison, actually, and a trip that he had taken to Mecca. Uh, he had taken Hajj to uh, Mecca, and uh, he wouldn't reveal who paid for the trip. And I was a very new reporter, and, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Like, what, who paid for the trip? Why don't we know who paid for the trip? And it sort of caused this whole... I mean, it was a front-page story. I had been there for two weeks. So it was a very much... I really started off uh, <laughs> right, talking to Keith Ellison. I don't know how many calls I got directly related to Keith Ellison, but certainly people very unhappy about the way things were going in... 09, 10, I think with the healthcare bill, there was a lot of just interest in that, you know, from both sides, but, you know, and this was as the Tea Party was ramping up too, and Michelle Bachman was becoming much more prominent on the national scene, and so we were writing stories about her, so there was no dearth of things for people to call in about. <laughs> I mean, covering a national, I actually haven't talked to anybody about this specific, but covering national D.C. politics in D.C., and things that are like policy and mm-hmm. that affect things, uh, probably does attract a lot of attention. Yeah, although I would say, so I've sort of gone backwards. I, I have a little weird trajectory. I started in the D.C. Bureau and then went to cover the state legislature, and now I cover City Hall. So you might say I'm like really doing this the wrong way. <laughs> I don't know. But I am very happy with that because... Um, Covering when you're a regional reporter in DC, I've told people it's like watching a boxing match from the last row. You are, you're sort of, you know, looking over everybody's heads and you're trying to figure out what's going on and you're reading, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times to get sort of the main, you know, whatever the main policy debate is that you're going to have to ask your delegation about. But it's a it's an interesting job. I you know it's not we I mean the way we used to cover Washington 50 years ago was that we would write what we would now put in as a wire story. So, like, whatever the White House is doing today, we would write that. The, the Minnesota Bureau, or the, sorry, the D.C. Bureau of the Minnesota paper would write that themselves. That's now switched to where we need to get reaction from our delegation about that, or we're going to write about issues that are affecting Minnesota in D.C., uh, you know, whether it's, like, you know, sugar beets or what have you, like, what is the policy there? So it's a very different job, but um, I don't know. I really I love covering now local issues and the city. I think even though it is going backwards, I'm happy with happy with the way that's gone. Well, uh, how'd you get into the journalism business, the news business, as we call it, <laughs> the journalism business? I don't know where that comes from. I feel like I started where a lot of people start, which was in college. Um, where, you know, I got to college, I, in, in high school I had uh, started a radio station and that was really what I was interested in, and I got to college and I said, I mean, I want to do something with media, whether it's radio or print, and the radio station was online only and it was sort of ragtag and the, uh, the newspaper was an independent paper, it was a non-profit, sort of very independent of the university financially and everything, it was a great paper. And so I just threw myself into that as much as possible. And was, was that the hatchet? Yeah, it was the hatchet, which is an interesting name. You know, the hatchet job, hatchet. Uh, <laughs> people bring that up a lot. Yeah, it's a, 
It, it, it must be interesting to make that call to somebody the first time. Hi, I'm with the hatchet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you ever react to that? Uh, I think they... I mean, I've definitely heard people bring up, like, hatchet job in relation, but, uh, you know, I mean, it's rare these days. I would say, I would say it's rare for a non-daily paper to be financially independent, editorially independent, completely. You know, everyone... I mean, I think editorial independence is in a lot of papers, but to have financial independence as well... Daily papers often have that, but non-daily papers, I, we came out twice a week at the time. And anyway, so I rose up and then eventually became editor-in-chief my senior year. Well, let's back up. Who in radio were you listening to that inspired, that wanted made you want to get into media? Um, Was there anybody? I mean, I definitely grew up listening to NPR uh, in, you know, just with my parents. And actually, I would say uh, probably earlier than that, when I grew up as a kid, my father and my mother and I would sit and listen to a show called The Great Gildersleeve, which was from the 1940s. Uh, I ended up writing some papers about this in college. But anyway, uh, The Great Gildersleeve was a show. Was the first, I think it was the first spinoff um, in radio. I'm not positive, but I think it was. It was a spinoff of Fibro Game Molly. We would sit around and eat Virginia peanuts and listen to this show. And uh, I really was totally absorbed in that kind of uh, it was a very sort of sitcom format show. And then also, as a kid, ironically, listened to a lot of uh, Prairie Hill Companion. We just listened to that on the weekends. That was like what we did on a Saturday night. It would always be in the house. Um, and then, you know, This American Life, and then later, uh, like Radio Lab and things like that. And more recently, sort of kept my interest in radio up. But yeah, certainly old time radio is where it started. And uh, sort of that variety radio, and that it doesn't really exist anymore, but <laughs> a little bit. There's some radio theater here. Well, it, it can if you write something. Uh, if you ever decide to go look for a new career, you can right. bring it back. Yeah, I could try. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's such a cool medium that, you know, like that. I think Prairie Home Companion is doing something that few, I mean, there's nothing like that out there anymore, which is a radio variety where you actually get to imagine what's happening. Uh, anyway, so that was where my interest in radio started, was with The Great Go to Sleep, which if you ever have a chance to listen to it, it's a great show. And you can, it's all free now on the internet, you know, you can download every episode for, like, nothing, so. <laughs> that would be free, right? Well, I think you might have to pay something to get, like, there's an app you can download where you pay, like, $2 to get every episode streaming or something like so, yeah. And so you you started at the hatchet. Was there like a conversation with an advisor or something where you thought these two things through? You know, like am I going to do radio or or print? Or? I think once I started in at the paper, it was print for me. I, I think I, you know, uh, I was pretty committed to doing that. I mean, I think it was one of those things where you get to college, you find this extracurricular activity that. Uh, has now in introduced you to all these friends that you now know, and you now have this social circle. You know, it's almost like being in a fraternity, like you know, but more of a professional fraternity. And uh, so you just identify with these people, and you want to be with them. And so I think I, I basically just immersed myself in that and didn't really uh, look back. But I mean, these worlds are, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that you know, these things are exclusive of one another. I mean, there's such great radio reporters that came from print journalism of course. and vice versa. So, you know, I think the worlds are blending maybe more than they did. Uh, but I don't, know. I don't know if it is more now than it was. Do you remember your first story at that paper? 
I think so, yeah. I think, well, at least remember my front, first front page story, which I actually think was my first story, which was about a dean that lived on campus. Like, he lived on, like, this remote campus, like, this uh, satellite campus we had. And so it was my first story that said, you know, write this story about this guy, I think his name Fred Siegel, he lives on campus, he's a dean, he's like the only dean that lives on campus, so that's interesting, and why does he do that, and whatever. And I wrote this thing, and then it was on the front page of the paper, and, uh, you know, it's one of these things where when you, I think, especially with younger reporters, there's that, you, you know, when you get that front page story, especially earlier on, it's just like, you want more, you know, you just... It, it uh, it's like very addicting, especially just to get some early exposure, and then you could toil in inside stories for months. But you still remember that one that was on the front page, and it drives you for like another couple months. So I do remember that story. I, if I, I, ninety nine percent sure that was my first story. Do you still uh, get that rush, that high? Yeah, I think so. I think I find for me, uh, journalism uh, is a very like. It's a very emotional business for me because um, I think it's like being a salesman in some ways. A lot of the stories I write are reporter-driven. Like, I'm, like in other words, they're not being handed to me. I'm, I'm choosing to do this enterprise story or this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, in my head, and this is like, you know, I probably shouldn't think this way, but it's like, how much have I brought in lately? You know, am I working hard enough? Do I... Have I sort of gotten enough? I, well, I've gotten a lot of small stories, but have I done some really important stories lately? You know, how often am I in the paper? And uh, so, and then you'll be really down, and then you'll have that one great story that lands, and that'll sort of keep you happy for a couple weeks. You know, you'll be satisfied. Well, I did that story, so that, you know, I really brought it home on that one. Um, so it is, <laughs> it's hard sometimes. I think I'll eventually I'll have to lose that mindset because it's hard. It's, hard to sustain that kind of up and down but I know old guys that I think are like that Mm -hmm. who've been doing this forever yeah you're gonna have to start smoking though right yeah smoke I used to smoke I gave it up get back on it I know I mean actually smoking made me more stressed out (laughs) so (laughs) but now you're walking to counteract yeah now I walk but I especially smoking during the day like it would completely stress me out even more so I think I'm actually better without it so I exercise instead I think that is helpful I guess that works as a substitute for smoking. Yeah. But, uh, Public health advocates would be happy that. <laughs> that's right. I'm not a. I'm not a, an advocate for tobacco. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is not a sponsored by right. tobacco. But uh, no. So. How so? Were you at that paper for four years? Which paper? The, the hatchet. Yeah, all four years. So freshman, you know, through senior year, I was there, and just sort of. I think I became an editor my junior year as metro editor and d- doing like stuff that dealt with the city, like stuff that dealt with DC and all, both politically and crime wise, um, and like students involved with like criminal issues, and uh, which was always a tough, uh, it was always a tough space to be in because you know there's you'd have like drug dealers on campus, and then you'd have to make these judgment calls about. You know, maybe not drug dealers, but or maybe there's a big drug bust, and these are people that have possession of something. And I just remember there's not necessarily just myself, but the whole editorial staff. We have to discuss these things, like when do we reveal the names, and you know what is worthy of 
having all that public scrutiny. Because there was a time where you, if you get written up in the college paper, then whatever, and then you graduate, and then no one ever hears about it ever again. But that's gone. I mean, I would say at least once a week, I would get a call, especially when I was editor-in-chief, I would get a call from someone from the past. Not like someone who I never dealt with from like five years ago. Some story was written about them. And most of these were mostly benign. I mean, these were people who just commented on a really benign issue, but they wanted it taken off the internet because it was they didn't want anything that was out of their control, like on the internet or something that was just a point in their life where they weren't ready to be sort of, you know, speaking for the ages, I guess, online. And uh, we usually pretty much always decline those requests because it's sort of the world we live in now. Uh, so, yeah, it was, but that was tough. There was a, and they would usually threaten legal action, and we had an attorney, and so there was a lot of that back and forth that would go on. It was just a, took a lot of time. And Did they go to court while you were there? No, nothing went to court. Uh, when they would threaten to sue, I would basically say, okay, you've now mentioned that word, so you're going to have to talk <laughs> to our attorney, because I'm going to have to stop talking to you now. You right. Know? And, uh, and generally, I tried to sort things out over the phone, because I, you know, I don't think emails are helpful in those situations. Um, but yeah, nothing went to court while I was there, thankfully. So. No. Uh, good. So... <laughs> Did you, um, at what year did you get the internship with the strip? 2009. Junior? Senior? Oh, I would gra- I just, I graduated. So, okay, okay. Yeah. So I suppose. So yeah, I went right from college into my internship with the Star Tribune. Is that the only paper you've ever worked for? Yes. Yeah. Is that trippy at all? Uh, it's weird. I think, you know, I sort of, in some ways, um, you know, I skipped a couple steps there that some, that, a lot of people have to take uh, because I just found myself in a good situation and I got a great internship, um, you know, probably through networking and people that I knew um, from, you know, my college paper and what have you. And so I was very lucky, uh, you know, to get to where I was uh, now. And so, yeah, it, it is sort of strange to go right into a, you know, a fairly large paper, um, and uh, so yeah, now I've been there for five years, so I feel like I'm sort of part of the old guard a little bit. You probably are. <laughs> I'm getting there. We've had a lot of turnover lately with uh, our new owner. You know, people were allowed to take buyouts um, because of the new ownership. So there has been a lot of turnover in the newsroom. So I am sort of uh, being there for five years is now sort of becoming a long time. There's a lot of people who've been there a lot longer than I have, but uh, yeah. So how long were you in DC? One year. One year? Well, I mean, after, yeah, after I graduated. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, of course. Yeah. Um, what else did you work on there? Um, you know, I was covering Congress. I mean, as I said, I mean, this was when the health care bill was coming through. This was when Michelle Bachman was rising to prominence. Uh, Al Franken came in. So, like, some stories that I remember, in addition to the Ellison story, I remember writing one about, like, Franny Franken, Al Franken's wife, was becoming much more prominent as, like, a spouse of a senator. Um, and then Michelle Bachman, with these health care rallies, we would cover those. I mean, she was really leading the fight against the health care bill at that point. Um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, so there was a lot of things around those issues, like Colin Peterson's involvement with 
the what became the Don Frank bill and sort of financial regulation because he was uh, I think he was chair of the Ag Committee at that point and futures like you know the sort of in financial term futures they, they off they go a lot of that deals with agriculture so uh, he would be involved in that anyway so there was a lot of a lot of interesting stories there but I I I really I've never been more engaged with the things that I'm writing about as far as just interested, I would say, than I am now. Just because I think covering a city that you live in is so unique. Uh, to be able to walk around and constantly be thinking about, you know, what about that? You know, I could, is there something there? Is there more to what I'm, you know, seeing as I walk around? And um, so I, I'm very, it's, it's a very different kind of approach, I would say, like, whereas... I mean, it's just very unique, I think, to live in a city and cover it at the same time. Sure. And, and uh, I have a lot of questions about that. Yeah. But um, were you good at being a reporter when you started? In, uh... <laughs> Whatever that means. Sure. I mean, I don't, like, I, I have questions about it even now, uh, whether I'm still good at being a reporter. But, um, you know, I think uh, you're all, I think, I mean, I've always been insecure. I think you know, from the get-go, you're always, especially in a scenario like that where you're thrown in and you're immediately dealing with, like, very sort of important people, uh, and you are this, I think I was 23, maybe, or 20, 22, 23, um, you know, there's a lot to take in, um, you know, I, I think you're, but I, you know, you sit around people in a newsroom, and uh, I often compare myself to people and say, I wish I was more like that person, I wish I was more like that person. And I don't know to what extent they're saying the same thing about other people in the room, you know, I wish I was more like that person. But um, So I think I've definitely grown a lot as a reporter, and I had to grow pretty fast in the D.C. Bureau, I would say. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I think I, think I, was, I was fine. I think I was fine. <laughs> I don't think I was great, but I think I was fine. You didn't mess anything big up? No, not that I can recall. Uh, I didn't have any major screw-ups. Um, you know, I will say, when I was in, uh, when I was in college, um, we had, there was like, I was the, I was the editor-in-chief on a, on a story where uh, we said that the university was going to phase out an unofficial hippo mascot. <laughs> I already um, like this story. Yeah. And um, so we we write, we ran this story and like it was they were on the record sources, like people uh, I forget which department they were in. And I wasn't the I was the editor in chief, so I was sort of just getting the story at the end of the day and it was done by a reporter who had their own editor. And the universe, the moment the story came out, the university like went all in pushing back on this as a notion, and they brought this hippo out around campus, and he had a sign that said "I'm alive and well," and he was literally dancing around <laughs> campus. And essentially, now looking back on it and what happened, what I what I believe happened was that the people who told us this had not run this up the chain, so it was like a mid-level management decision that had not gone up to the top of top brass. And but when we ran it, they decided to go after us, like that we were wrong and it was the hatchet that was wrong and that we had sort of, you know, cuz the alumni were calling, are you going to get rid of it? and the 
the genesis of the hippo was even stranger because it had to do with the university president who had, I think, gone abroad and found a statue that he really liked and he brought it back and he was like, this is our new unofficial mascot. Because <laughs> uh, our official mascot was George Washington, so we had to have this other mascot. And uh, But anyway, so I still, to this day, don't think that we were uh, wrong. I think we, you know, I think there was some bureauc- bureaucratic issues there. But to this day, that story uh, haunts me um, because it's sort of like I remember it uh, or it just sits, it lingers in the back of my mind about, you know, um, when is that when is that thing just going to come back and kick you and you don't expect it? Like, have you checked every possibility on every story? Because remember what happened. And this is now my senior year of college. So this is this was like 2008, I guess. Um, it is weird how sometimes those things follow you and you don't forget them. Because uh, it really was, you know, when people are attacking your credibility, uh, you never forget that. You know, like I just, I don't know. And I'm grateful that I have not been in a situation, um, you know, professionally where I've had like a major attack on my credibility. But even though I think we were in the right in that story, um, you know, the way that it all played out, like, I still remember it. And I still, it still forces me to, if I have a story now running on a Sunday, I sit here for an hour on a Saturday, and I will go through the story, and I will listen to the quotes again, and I will, I just, it makes me, it still makes me very neurotic. And I don't know if that's a positive thing. (laughs) Uh, but it's not good for your stress, your for your uh, stress levels, or your relationships. No, no, it's not. It's um, good for cops. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think it's good. You know, it's good for the paper at the end of the day. But yeah, that story still sticks with me. What's the What's the lesson there? I mean, I mean, because you don't think you were wrong. No, right? I don't think so. I mean, in other words, I think that we were maybe led astray about how, like, how official this decision was to get rid of the mascot. Is it one guy who oversees this department, or is this the entire university making the decision? Um, you know, I think the lesson is that, uh, to the extent possible, I think a good philosophy that I have with stories is no surprises, which is an, an editor, a former editor of mine, sort of taught me that which is that, you know, if you're going to put something in a story about someone or what have you, um, give them, everybody should have the opportunity, they don't even have to, they don't have to respond if they don't want, but like, just shoot them an email letting them know this is what's in the story, um, so that everybody knows what sort of, everybody who needs to know knows what's in the story before it goes out. And to some degree, you know, that can prevent you from, you know, going down a path or, or, you know, maybe something's in a lawsuit, but someone knows that it's sort of not the way that it is or what have you. And, um, you know, maybe if on the, on the hippo story, maybe if we had called all the way up the chain to the university president's office and said, are you really getting rid of the hippo? We would have had this like big reaction. No, we're not. And the story would have been, well, they say they're getting rid of the hippo and they say they're not. And it would have been, you know, more nuanced. Um, again, I didn't write the story, but I edited it. Um, and I think that, so my philosophy now is very much about, like, no surprises. You know, if you're going to be, if I'm going to write a story about you, uh, and, you know, I want you to know pretty much what's in this story. And I think it comforts your sources or the people that you're talking to a lot, you know, if you call them back. or And also calling back. That's a big one, too. 
I call people back two, three times. I'm like, I'm not, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm just going to ask you. I'm going to, let me, maybe I could read you a sentence here. Is this about right if I describe that accurately? I paraphrase something you said. Can I read it back to you and make sure that I paraphrased it correctly? And, um, you know, they don't, people love it. People love to know, you know, sort of, I mean, for them, it's, they rest easier, like, if they feel like they've been, if they give given a fair shake here, you know, to describe something. And I rest easier knowing that they said, yeah, that's, you know, that's what I said. So, I don't know, this is all a description of me being neurotic. <laughs> sure, kind of uh, the theme yeah. so far, right? Yeah. But the, uh, what happened to the hippo? I think he's still there. I think they kept the hippo. Um, yeah, because that was the thing, is that I think the... The mid-management guy wanted to... I think, he, I think his plan was to get rid of it. But then this backlash happened, and the alumni said, what are you doing, and whatever. And so uh, they kept the hippo, I think. It was one of those things, you know, it gets floated out and press, and then they push back, and then that's that. Well, I'll tell you a personal secret. Okay. Which is that I really like hippos, and I like <laughs> the word hippo. Okay. I don't, know, uh, I don't know if you get too many opportunities in urban America to say the word hippo, so <laughs> thank you very much. Sure, yeah. Uh, you wound up with the... Uh, so you wound up, after your internship, did you come straight to Minneapolis to cover Minneapolis? No, I came... Uh, I, I started covering... So it was actually a great transition because I started covering the congressional the, races after that. That's right. Yeah. And then the state legislature. And then the legislature. That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, that's fine. And so I got here, and this is back to my car. I bought a car. The first time I had ever driven a car at night was when I drove this car off the lot uh, in White Bear Lake. And I almost asked the guy, like, what do some of these controls do? <laughs> but I didn't. <laughs> um, and I remember the next day I said... You know, there's this rally going on in Fergus Falls, and this uh, congressional candidate is going to be there, who was not a very big deal congressional candidate. I'm going to go, and uh, I'd like to cover this, and it was just sort of, you know, I was on the road. I really wanted to be on the road at that point. And, um, you know, and I, I did. I, I The biggest story I wrote during that campaign was where I was told to go up to the 8th Congressional District, which is the Iron Range in Minnesota, and it's really a big part of the state. It's like a quarter, you know, volume-wise, it's about a quarter of the state, or size-wise. And um, I was told to sort of take the temperature up there, which is a huge place, right? Like, take the temperature. And that's, so, that's, the, that's the instruction? Yeah, well, because well, the point was that uh, Jim Oberstar, who had represented that area forever, suddenly had, I mean, we had this Tea Party wave happening nationally, and um, Chip Kravak, who was a Republican... Um, he was really, you know, waging a pretty good campaign up there and, you know, a lot of lawn signs popping up to the extent lawn signs mean something. And I remember, so I went up and I'm just sitting in diners and, uh, like going up to people all over the place, just going from town to town trying to find people. Um, and, you know, sitting with Chip Kravak and his RV and, you know, just getting a flavor for this whole area. And, and he ended up winning. Chip Quebec ended up winning that race. So we wrote this story saying, you know, this guy is serious and, and maybe he has a chance. And then it turned out he did have a chance. Uh, and he beat Jim Oberstar. And he ended, he's no longer in office. Uh, and Jim Oberstar recently passed away. But um, it was a fascinating experience, you know, because here I am, this guy from 
DC. I've written about Aaron Range, and I've written about I've met Jim Orberstar in DC, and I knew him somewhat. And but now here I am in the district, going around, driving around, uh, new driver, and just trying to take it all in. And I'll never forget that trip. It was, and I was all alone. It's not like in TV where you might have a producer with you, or you know, like I, I was just. They didn't send a cameraman. No. So I had my SLR camera, which I still have, and and I just sort of took pictures where I could, and that was <laughs> that was that, you know. Uh, Is that something that comes easy for you, the taking people's temperature, just coming up and asking people, hey, what do you think? I think that's still really hard. I think it's um, because some you know, a lot of people don't expect to be talking to a reporter if they're sitting at a diner eating breakfast, which is what some of these people were. And I remember having maybe 10 to 15 minute conversations with people who are saying really good stuff, good analysis. And then they say, Oh, I don't want my name used in the paper. And they, Oh man, you know, it was going to be so good. Uh, so I started to learn to, you know, just before you even start to say, you know, I would like to quote you by name, you know, like just <laughs> let's get that out of the way. If you're not comfortable with that, then let's not even go any further. And uh, and you just yeah it was weird I'd be eating lunch someplace and I I'd, I'd see someone reading a newspaper for example and I'd say oh, okay well they must be maybe following this and um, yeah and so yeah I remember that trip it was great so so that was that was kind of a memorable thing from that time and mm-hmm. then uh, um, how long before you wind up covering the city so that was two that was fall two thousand ten and then about a uh, then I covered the legislature for. A, part of a year or between two years and then um, and then I ended up in city fall 2011 so September 2011 and uh, you've been raving about that since <laughs> we've been talking yeah so no regrets yeah no I love covering the city I mean what goes into that like what goes into your day to figure out hey I'm gonna I'm covering Minneapolis it's mm-hmm. a big city you mean where do I start every day or whatever um, like learning yeah. it working it yeah, I think, um, you know, it's a lot to learn. Like, I still I still find myself learning constantly about something that happened, you know, 10 years ago that, you know, I, mean, I just wasn't around long enough to know that that happened or some big thing. You know, there's always these elephants in the room that you need to know about going into some policy discussion. So I'm constantly looking at our clips about things and trying to, you know, and I'm starting, I'm getting to a point now where I think I have a lot of that in my head. But, um, you know, I, I don't know. The, the great thing about covering a city, and someone, one of our editors brought this up to me, was that there's, there's so many data points, right? Like, when you're covering federal politics and state politics, uh, it's very much policy debate. And there are a lot of policies debated at the local level. But, you know, cities, like, you know, they're getting 311 calls. They're getting, to- they're towing cars. They are tracking license plates, was another story that we did. Uh, there's locations of bus shelters. There's bus benches. I mean, there's all of these, you know, can we pull some of these data sets out and say, what do we see? What's happening? Uh, are there sort of systematic ways that um, things are sort of put out into the built environment? Um, and so that has been very interesting. I think, I mean, and obviously that's one part of city reporting. But it's, you know, putting big picture into context, there's so many data points you can pull out and see how, does, how is the city functioning as an organism, in a way. 
And I think that's really fascinating. And you can't do that in too many other levels of reporting. You know, it's a very local thing often. I don't know. Um, a recent example, well, one recent example was with bus shelters. So Metro Transit keeps, uh, they keep data. They, they recently released a list of bus boardings by bus stop. Right, which seems like the most arcane data set ever. Like who? I Not a sexy topic. Not a sexy topic. So this is literally every bus stop in the city. Here's how many people board on a weekday, and here's how many people board on a weekend. Okay. So I took, but they but they have site IDs on them. So I took that, and then they also have a list of all the bus shelters in the Twin Cities. So then I I took them, and then I recently learned how to use Microsoft Access. So I sort of combined these, and I said, okay. Because we have guidelines about where bus stop, bus shelters go based on ridership. So I said, okay, let's. I just want to see the stops that are over 40 passengers per day, which is the, the, the minimum in Minneapolis to get a bus shelter. I want to see over 40 passengers, but I want to see it where there's not a corresponding bus shelter. So i.e., it meets the qualifications to get a bus shelter, but it doesn't have a bus shelter, right? And so what we found was that there were hundreds of hundreds of stops with with hundreds of people at them every day. Hundreds? Yeah, hundreds. Less, more than three hundred? Uh, I forget the exact number. I do think it was more than three hundred. There was. I know that there was about two hundred stops on the flip side that um, had too few riders to have a shelter and had a shelter. So you sort of there was this mismatch going on. Where, you know, there's just a lot of people, I mean, these are people riding the bus in Minnesota, right? And it's, it's horrible in the wintertime, and we have horrible wind chills. And so, you know, shelters are a big deal to some people. And, um, and so we, I presented all this to Metro Transit. Metro Transit ended up uh, sort of doing a similar analysis after that I sent it to them. And, um, you know, because they had, like, you know, some it got really complicated with where. Okay, this is actually a transit sh- center, and uh, anyway, it got a little complicated. But then we agreed on okay, here is the here are the numbers, and it was still in the hundreds, and I think it was three hundred something. And I have to look at the story, but um, and that was you know that was just taking two sets of data, merging them together, and saying and then using you know data tools to pull out you know, what was actually seemingly a big mismatch in where we're putting our transit amenities. Um, and now they're going to build a hundred and they're going to build like 150 new ones next year. There's a big plan next year to put in new bus shelters. I don't think it had anything to do with me, but there is. You should take credit. <laughs> no, I shouldn't. I think they, well, they were going to do some of it already and then they just got a big federal grant the other day to do even more. So, well, that's, th- I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of a uh, pretty straightforward, but important, uh, accountability type of work right like what are we supposed to be doing or what do we say we're doing mm-hmm. and then like do we actually have these bus stops yeah and I think bus shelters the thing about it too is that we often in the media here at sometimes there's a lot of focus on these big capital projects in the, in the realm of transportation like we're going to build you know this light rail and it's $1.6 billion, and it goes to the western suburbs. And, and that should have a lot of coverage. I mean, that's a huge policy discussion. There's a lot of money on the table. Um, but I think some of what I've found in being a Minneapolis reporter is that 
there's a lot of very ground level stuff that affects people on a daily basis that there's not a lot of eyes on, like bus shelters. Like bus shelters. Yeah. Did any of your editors like think you were nuts for wasting some time looking at that data? I felt like I was nuts uh, <laughs> for a little while because I'm like, you know, I've got all these spreadsheets going around and I'm saying to myself, like, is this worth it? Do people care about this? And I'm always sort of polling my, you know, my office mates. Like, is this a, do you care about that? If I told you this, would that mean anything to you? Um, but, you know, I mean, I think you start to, th- you know, if you go out, I mean, I end up going out and talking to people waiting at bus shelters. You know, it's important to people. Um, well, you ride the bus, right? And I ride the bus, too. So I, I see it, you did, know. Did that come to mind because of that? How how that pop in your head? I think I, if I hadn't, if I didn't ride the bus, it probably wouldn't have been, I never would have thought, well, let's, do, let's take, like, when I saw the data set, I probably never would have thought, let's merge this together with ridership and look at that, because, you know, when you ride the bus, you have a lot of time to think about the bus and, you know, the infrastructure of the bus. Another, and this is just, I, I, think I could go into many minutiae things, but another one was bus benches. Um... Metro Transit actually doesn't track bus benches because their municipalities do it. And one company has basically had a monopoly on bus benches in this city for about 50 years, U.S. Bench. And we no one maps their benches either. Each city just keeps a list, a physical document list of where the benches are. So I had to take the list and wherever it said Dale at Snelling, so I had to say Dale... You know, Dale Street at Snelling Avenue, comma, St. Paul, Minnesota, whatever. And then geocode it. And one of the things we found is that they just don't put many benches in North Minneapolis, which is one of the poorest parts of the Twin Cities. And um, so these are the people that use transit a lot. And there are not many benches up there compared to the ridership at all. And it was just another example where, like, you just map it and you see something. And so at the end of the day, I wonder sometimes, well, okay, does that... <laughs> you know, I think it matters to people, but, um, you know, I think sort of these weird built environment stories, they do, you know, I think people care about them to some degree. Wait, um, did you get good reactions on them? Yes, because the other component of the story is that a lot of other companies said that they would be willing to pay more to both cities to put in better benches. Because these are, it's basically advertising. I mean, they just get money from the advertising. So these, U.S. Bench pays a fairly small amount by comparison to some other cities per bench. And uh, and these and the, the other thing that we found was that in St. Paul, there's a in the ordinance it says you can't have a monopoly on bus benches. It says you, there's 460 licenses. You can only have 450 of those licenses per company just to prevent some overarching monopoly. So the city of St. Paul said, okay, U.S. Bench has these 450 locations and these 10 locations belong to National Courtesy Bench Corp. Okay, what's National Courtesy Bench for? Well, if you look at their Secretary of State filings, oh, no. they're just U.S. Bench. It's just the <laughs> same address, same everything. Turns out U.S. Bench bought out this other company that was trying to make a play a couple of years ago. And so, yeah, it's just like they had to have all of the benches. How do I guess? That's some straight Chicago stuff. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I knew what was coming. Yeah, yeah. You can see it from a mile away. <laughs> What's the... Uh, uh, you know, that's funny. That's... Uh, so that... That's... That's good stuff. You should... I appreciate I that. I hope you had fun with that. I did have fun with that. Do you have fun with, like... After after the neuroses is done? Yeah, I do. I think... But do you ever, like, actually savor it or be like, Yeah, I did a nice story. 
I, yeah, I think that lasts for a couple days, uh, you know, and, and then you move on. I think the one that uh, lasted for the longest was a couple years ago, or two year, a year or two ago now, um, where I, someone, a source of mine was saying, you know, these cops have these license plate readers, and, um, and they basically use them to track vehicles. And these things are now pretty common knowledge. I mean, you know, there's these things that just snap license plates all day long. So that if they're stolen cars or whatever. And, but if they, but there was no data practices, which is our sort of FOIA law. There's no open data law about these things. So it's presumed public in our, in our statutes. So I said, give me all, all the information you have about my license plate. I used myself as sort of a, guinea pig in this situation. So I gave my license plate to the police. I said, I want to know everything you have. So they gave me back a list of, I think it was 11 locations where they had seen my car, which means I passed like a trooper on the street or an officer on the street, or I had a parked car and they drove past me and they just snapped my plate. So we published a map in the paper of my locations and it was like, it's all my daily activities. I'm driving to work, I'm at my friend's house, you know, whatever. Hopefully not doing something illicit. Exactly, right. And so that was sort of surprising. And then I said, uh, give me the, so then I went, I figured out what the mayor's license plate was, uh, what the, their public vehicle was. And so I said, give me all the ones in the mayor's car. And that had a lot more because I think he, maybe he was just near, uh, you know, police more and he's also driving more in the middle of the day. And so, but that came back with pictures, too, because some of them were very recent, and they kept the pictures for, like, 21 days. So we published this map of all of Ryback's spotted locations and all the pictures of his car uh, in the paper, and uh, that <laughs> that had a big uh, impact, because then repo men started using the data similarly to try to find cars. I mean, before your story, right? Or no, after the story. After the story? Yeah, well, they, you know, suddenly it was discovered, we sort of showed that there was this big... Not only were police collecting location data on people, but at the time, it's basically public data. Right. And um, so that loophole has now been closed, uh, and they were supposed to craft a state law to, uh, to do, you know, to basically not only... They wanted to limit the retention time that police could keep the data, and that still has proven fairly controversial. Um, but there was an, sort of an emergency action to close off that data uh, from... Is- is Minneapolis still holding it for a year? Um, I think they are. I mean, the thing is, it's all closed off now, so it's harder to know. I think they are holding it for a year. But um, it was pretty amazing to see. But it's one example where sometimes if you can use yourself as a guinea pig, uh, you can, you know, it's like I'm not exposing someone else. I'm just expose myself, you know. Um, it was a little weird to put all my locations in print, but I don't know. Who cares, right? Um so, it was an interesting story. You didn't get any stalkers after that? <laughs> no, I don't think anybody cares about to, <laughs> to well, stalk me. Well, that's, uh, yeah, because that, I mean, that story got a lot of attention, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you you were a finalist for Livingston Award. Mm-hmm. And, like, I got that award. This is my... You got the Young, young Journalist of the Award. Yeah. But the, uh, um, how long, how much work went into that? Um, it was, you know... Compared to, like, the shelter story, for example, it was probably less work because a lot of it was just making, knowing what request to make and making the request. It wasn't toiling over data for, like, days upon days. Um, You know, one thing I'm happy we did with that story was that we kept on it. So I would go back 
weeks after that story was written, and I would check the logs of, of who had requested this type of data because they actually created a special binder for it. And it was like companies that had lost their cars, and then it was these repo men who were using it to find cars, and they did find some of the cars they were looking for. And, um, you know, obviously there were huge implications about this because of, like, you know, stalkers, as you said. I mean, you know, who knows all the different implications that could have. So it was eventually closed off, and, uh, you know. But um, certainly I don't think it's much... I mean, it was a lot of work maybe in the, in the overall because we kept coming back at it and trying to own the story as much as possible, which I think, you know, I think that's a good tactic to do if there's a lot more to be done on a story, if there's fallout or... Well, if you expose a problem, you should probably stay on it until the problem is fixed, right? Sure, yeah. Or to know, I mean, you know, how is this evolving, you know, now that we know this? Um, you know, and I think, you know, that comes up, we, we like a reporter recently, this story about a, um, you know, a child who died and was sort of, you know, the victim of a bureaucracy that just didn't work. And that has led to just days and days of, you know, legislators coming out and saying to change the law and what have you. And so I think it is important to make sure you stay on top of it after the story comes out. I think it's, and sometimes it takes an editor to say, yeah, let's keep going at that, you know, because you're sort of exhausted from putting, you know, going through all the work of getting the main story out. Um, so, I don't know. So how many years you've gotten now in the business about... Six, eight? Five at the Star Tribune, and then you can count college or not. So Nine. four in college. Well, we, we can count one year. We, we got to at least count the hippo year. Sure, yeah, so, so six. No, you got, you've got plenty of years, though, right, yeah. under your belt? Yeah, I'm getting there. How do you see yourself going forward? Going forward. Um, I guess that's two questions, right? How do you see yourself, and where do you see yourself? And I sure. merge them together in yeah. an awkward way. I mean, how do you just see yourself? I think, as I was saying earlier, it's um, it's very much, I mean, I think, in my mind, it's very much like, what have you done for me lately? Like, I feel like if I go a couple weeks and I haven't done anything of significance, I feel like I'm, I just feel horrible. And it's hard to even sometimes read the paper in the morning, because it's almost like all of my colleagues, like, oh, look at all, look what they did, and I'm not doing anything of any significance. Look, they're doing some great stuff in there. Um, you know, I know that I should sort of step back more and look at it more holistically. So, I mean, altogether, I would say I'm happy with where I am. Um, sort of going forward, I don't know. I guess I haven't thought too much about, you know, what I... what I, I think, you know, certainly I want to do more... Uh, I think there's more opportunities for data work, but... Um, there's places that I would love to grow more, you know. I mean, I think that certainly I, I want to, um, you know, I think, I think experiential journalism and being out in a sort of strange scenario or, you know, cities lend themselves to a lot of just very unique types of journalism. I think I would like to explore that more, um, you know, and uh, so that's part of it. I don't know. I don't really have a grand plan, but... Sure. I'm not saying you have to. Yeah. Because you're doing good, right? Yeah, I'm happy. You know, if, if everyone else is happy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy, kind of. Yeah, as long as everyone's happy. Um, you know, actually, this is a question. I interviewed John Tevlin, who mm -hmm. is a Star Tribune columnist. Yeah, uh, Good guy. And he had a thing where he talked briefly, you know, because he came from all sorts of places. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, all weeklies and 
magazines and stuff. Yeah. And he said at one point that sometimes he feels bad for people who've been at one place because they don't get to experience more of mm-hmm. like that kind of stuff. Have you I ever seen that? Have you ever thought about that? Like, yeah. like how would my life be different if I wrote for a magazine for a couple of weeks or a few months? I mean, I think there's a there's a it's very valid that you know you get into. I think to to have one set of experiences in any kind of context. Um, even if you're having varied experiences within it, like you're covering different beats, but you you, you work at this one newspaper. Uh, I think you know it's always good to have a diversity of experiences. I mean, like right now, I'm uh, planning to move, even though I'm very happy in the apartment that I'm in to all things, all extents and purposes. But um, I was realizing, like, I need to just my synapses in my brain. You know, it'd be nice to exercise uh, and give myself a new worldview and just give myself a new neighborhood and um so i think there's definitely it's definitely valid you know and uh i think it's hard when when you work at a great paper and uh and you and you're happy there um you know you say okay where would i where would i go i like being in minneapolis and i'm uh within minneapolis i think i'm in a really good spot um so you know where would you go from there um so I don't know. I haven't really given thought to, you know, somewhere else. But I, I do think that it's it's having a diversity of experiences, professionally and personally, only sort of helps you, you know, be a more informed person, a more you know empathetic person, maybe, or a more just knowledgeable person about different people's scenarios. Um, so I don't know. And I I think that the nice thing about being a beat reporter is that you can. You know, you can try to do a diversity of things within your beat and try to put yourself in different places and do different things. It's not like you're covering the same thing every day, especially in a city where there's so many different things going on. Um, So, I mean, to the extent that I get an education about how Minneapolis works on a day-to-day basis, I still love to do that. Um, You know, and and on the side, I, I... I'm constantly looking at the history of the city and I love to look at the past of the city so I can understand it better. Um, you ever do any nerdy historical stories like about neat old stuff? Because yes. you get a lot of it. I do, and I always wonder, like, is, should I be doing this? Does anyone care about this? <laughs> uh, I recently wrote a story. I heard, a po- speaking of podcasts, I heard a podcast called it's 99% Invisible, this podcast about design. They talk about Thomasons, which are pieces of the built environment that are obsolete but maintained. So I called this streetcar historian, and I said, you know, this is what a Thomason is. You're, you know of any? He said, well, this is a streetcar shelter. It's the last streetcar shelter, and it's in this park, and it's not marked, and it's just sitting there. And they chopped down a tree a couple years ago to save it, even though no one knows what it is. And they did a whole story about the last streetcar shelter. It's still standing there, you know? And... Uh, I think stories like that are important. You know, we have to do these really important stories about, you know, whatever, <laughs> if you want to consider bus shelters important. But you have to do those hard-hitting enterprise stories. But then there's also so much stuff that you can write about, um, like the last regard shelter. Or I was recently in the library. I love to go to the library and look at old, uh, like, city plans. Like, what was our vision of the future in, like, 1957 or 1974? And, uh, and you know, well, how much of it came true and how much of it was just, you know, sort of propaganda. And um, I do that. I don't know why I do that, but I do like to do that. Um, no, it's fun. It's, it's hard to find a place to put it. 
like it's hard to find. Like, you, like I, for I'll give you a good example right now. I, in my spare time, I have a report uh, that I found in the library called uh, "Freeways in Minneapolis: An Appraisal for the City Council and the City Planning Commission," which is basically, as far as I can tell now, this was sort of the case that was made for freeways going through the heart of the city in 1957. And it was, uh, I looked at our clips in the basement, I love going down to our clip room in the basement, and it was saying, like, the Barton Report is about to come out, you know, like, it's going to be for $5, you can buy it at City Hall, and, you know, everyone was waiting for this report. And it's a fascinating report, and it talks about how property values are going to increase next to the freeways, because everybody wants to be next to freeways, <laughs> and, you know... This isn't just about private automobiles. This is about whatever the future mode of transportation is. We're going to put that on the freeways instead of private automobiles. And all these sort of things that we're, we were talking about when we approved these things. And so I'm, I want to do something about this. I would love to put this out there because I've scanned it because I think it should be... People should read it and look at it and just sort of have context about what we're, how did we get to where we got today but then it's sort of hard to sometimes find, like, where, where does that land? Does that land on a, you blog that, and then it just goes into nowhere, and you try to make it into a bigger deal. Unfortunately, I don't have any anniversaries coming up. Uh, yep, that's or, the trick, isn't it? Yeah. Find, find a round date. I know, or, I know. Or a date that ends with a five. Yeah, so I do this in my spare time, and I have a report with me, because I'm supposed to take tomorrow off, and I want to just sit and do some more research about it. And uh, so I... That consumes a lot of my, a lot of my spare time, but I think that's kind of, that kind of stuff is important. You know, we shouldn't forget that kind of stuff. And um, you know, I think it's there are. It's just a matter of finding a like a landing zone for it. I would say, you know, and the same thing with streetcar one. We found a spot for that. I guess, sure, but I don't know. lobby your editor. Yeah, yeah. What's the best way to follow you if people want to follow you and they don't have access to the license plate trackers? Right. Um, I'm on Twitter, Strib Roper, which is where you can see a lot of my uh, late night historical searches <laughs> in the <laughs> library because I don't know what else to do with it. And uh, so I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, where if you've ever wondered if there's any uh, beauty in Minneapolis, I try to. I, I do an Instagram account where, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking about my East Coast friends who've never been to Minneapolis to just prove to them there's so many great things to see in Minneapolis so they're often that's so far Eric Eric RPR on Instagram and uh, and then I don't know and then I'm on yeah I got my bio page on my page which has all my stories well that's good yeah thanks for taking some time to chat with me yeah thanks so much this is great